0: invite you to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 9, the Gospel of Matthew chapter 9. want to begin reading at verse 9, and we'll go down to verse 13. Matthew chapter 9, beginning at verse 9, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax collector's booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he got up and followed him. Then it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why is your teacher eating with tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard this, he said, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Well, it is a fascinating passage, and it's a fascinating passage because you can assume um, a certain amount of popularity among the disciples that Jesus called. I mean, you stop and you look at Jesus walking along the shore, and it's a very peaceful kind of, of, of uh, walk, I would suggest. Uh, they wouldn't be out working uh, on their nets if it was uh, uh, a real uh, ripping wind and, and bitterly cold. And then so Jesus comes and he calls these disciples, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. They're fishermen. We like fishermen, especially if they're bringing in salmon and halibut and haddock and so forth. I know that some of you like other kinds of fish, uh, but we, we are, a, as Atlantic Coast people, uh, we're, we're kind of joined to the sea. We like fishermen, it's okay. But here's a tax collector, and <coughs> we don't even need to know who the tax collectors are. We don't like that phrase, uh, tax collector. Uh, <coughs> we don't like paying taxes at all, Uh, believe it or not, I believe we should pay taxes. And uh, it's part of our responsibility to pay taxes. And uh, that's a privilege to pay taxes. Uh, But of course, the scriptures condemn false balances, don't they? And uh, I remember a few years ago, a man by the name of Ross Perot was running for the presidency of the United States. And he was saying that the tax rate ought to be at about 17%. And uh, people were saying, wow, you mean we could really get off of that little? And uh, Ross Pro Ross was sort of the, the tax collector's friend because people don't like tax collectors. But they, in particular, in this area, didn't like the tax collector because the tax collector most of the time was a Jew. And he was working for Rome. And so there was a built-up hostility to this man by the name of Matthew by virtue of what he was doing. He was able to secure for himself, and we know another character by the name of Zacchaeus, he was able to secure for himself a tax collecting franchise. It's basically the way it was operated. And you were able to get this this license to collect taxes for Rome. You were allowed to charge a commission on your service. And most of the time, the tax collectors charged a very generous commission for their service. And as a result, they were able to store up for themselves good, huge sums of money. And they were able to live with the upper crust. And they had large houses and and all sorts of goods. And that caused them to be even more uh, despised because you could see their wealth. They were living under a roof of wealth, they were dressed up in wealth, and uh, I doubt very much that they were going to uh, uh, a place like the Value Village to do their shopping, or for <coughs> those of you that have ever had the privilege of being in a Frenchie store, uh, where all the used clothing is thrown into large bins and you're rooting through, hoping that nothing bites you at the bottom of the pile. And uh, I don't think they shop in places like that. but. They were the ones that had everything going for them in the eyes of the world. And they were the most despised in the eyes of the Jews. And isn't it fascinating that Jesus would come to this particular individual? And it serves notice on a number of fronts, doesn't it? Because he's ministering in the area. He has been ministering in the area for quite some time now. It is the opening uh, year of his earthly ministry. And he has been going about preaching and teaching and he's acquired for himself a reputation. A few miracles have been performed and they have seen those take place. So everything about this man is a cause of curiosity. And now every time Jesus goes out and he does something, people are observing him. Now, one of the things that we know is that we as as professing Christians in our day and age basically are anonymous people. And nobody really pays too awful much attention to what you and I do. Now, if if, uh, you found your name in the paper tomorrow, people would start paying attention to what you do. But at this point in time, probably a lot of people don't pay much attention to you. They might think you're rather odd uh, on the street where you live, that on a Sunday morning they see you going out and and you're you're dressed for uh, business, uh, more formal kind of attire. And uh, you're carrying a book um, under your arm, in your hand, and they see you getting in your car with this strange book and these nice looking people that look really nice on Sunday, and away they go. That's a bit of curiosity, but it's not enough curiosity for them to come knocking on your door and say to you, "Um, can you tell me, I see you going away every Sunday, can you tell me where you go? Oh yeah, sure. Well, can you tell me what happens at a, at a Baptist church in Cotton? And you say, well, sure. And uh, then, then they say, do you, have to, do you have to put money in the plate? And you say, well, we'll give you some money if you need some. Sure. And now they're interested. Enough to seek the Lord, are they? That's the tragedy of our day. And Jesus... Fresh off this ministry of going across, remember, he goes across the sea, and he, he goes to the Gentile area, the pork producers of the area, and he casts the demons out of this, this man and, and, and his cohort, and then he's crossed back over again, and he heals this man, the paralytic that we saw last week. And now we notice that the crowds, of course, and we know it was crowds in verse 8, because it says it's crowds in verse 8, and they were awestruck. And then it goes on, and it tells us there's a continuum here in verse 9, that as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man called Matthew. And he comes to this wonderful place called the tax collector's booth. So he's all set up for business. And in other words, Matthew's on duty to the tax collector's booth. And it's interesting, he doesn't go to pay taxes. And we have to presume something about this, and, and I think it's more helpful that we presume something about it, and that is that by this time, Jesus had acquired a reputation not only on what he was doing, but what people were saying about him and what Jesus was saying. I think that's a necessity uh, for us to understand that. That Matthew, who is a pretty sharp fellow, he's got to be good at math, and, and he, he has to know how to collect taxes. He's got to be a literate man. So we have to attribute to him some wisdom here that he must have known who was encountering him at the booth. And notice what takes place. Because Matthew, this despised tax collector, drops everything and leaves a lucrative business to follow this man, Jesus. Jesus. And so this is the way it plays out, where he comes to the booth and he says to him, follow me. And there doesn't seem to be any real meaningful discussion going on. Give me 10 reasons why I should follow. Who are you? Where are we going? Uh, Is it going to be difficult? Am I going to be popular? Am I going to have the same kind of money? Is this going to affect my income? Well, what's going to take place? And we notice there's something fascinating about this, that there isn't a lot of interchange on that part. Now, in in our day and age, there would be a lot of interchange on our part because the gospel does come with demands. I have a book that's written by John Piper. Uh, I I like John Piper. Uh, I don't agree with everything that he's written. Um, But some of his earlier writings are quite superb. And one of them is a book on the demands of Jesus. Now, a title like that really doesn't attract people. I'm more interested in what Jesus can do for you, what Jesus will give to you. Uh, ten steps to be this and ten steps to be that and a little bit of this and a little bit of that and a little more of this. And how can I be rich, although Jesus wasn't? And, and how can I have all these things that all my rich friends have when Jesus didn't? And that's our culture. So when somebody comes along and says, I want to present to you 50 demands that Jesus is making on your life, we just about croak. Say, what? Demands on my life? You mean there are demands that come with the gospel? Yes. You mean there are have-tos in the gospel? Yeah, there are. You mean there are things that I have to do, responsibilities that I need to take up? Yes, there are. And Jesus comes to this man, Matthew, and he gives him the, the quickest call of the gospel. But it's because Matthew has known what's going on. You're in the square every day. You're opened up at your little booth. And you know when Jesus is coming. And you know when Jesus is going. And you're hearing all sorts of conversations. I knew everything that was going on in Exmouth Street in St. John, New Brunswick. Because my, my grand and my step-grandpa ran a store. We called them corner stores, it wasn't. It was smack dab in the middle of Exmouth Street. And everybody that came in, they came in, and sometimes they would come in, and they ladies would come in, and they would say, I'd like to have a couple of potatoes and, and a handful of carrots, please. That's how they bought their groceries. They went in there every day. And they, they'd come, and they'd go, out, oh, could you give me an onion? And he'd, Grampy Johnny'd reach in, grab an onion, how's that one look? Oh, that's great, good. Throw it on the scales of justice. Into the bag it goes and they would always deposit news in the store. You'd be stuck in that little store all day long. He'd go th- there early in the morning at 7.30, and he would stay there till 6 or 6.30 on weeknights, and then he really lived it up and it was open to about 9 o'clock on a Friday night. He never left that store, but he knew exactly what was going on in Exma Street because everybody was coming to his booth, and they were laying out what was going on. And that's exactly what it is. And Matthew knows exactly what's going on. He has this pulse beat on the neighborhood because the booth is open. Tax collectors like to be open. They like to be busy. And they like to have lots of money. And Jesus comes and he says, follow me. Do you notice there's some duplication in the call? He said that to the fishermen too. Now there's one added to it. And that is, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. But the essence of the call is this, follow me. I'm the son of God, and wherever I'm going, you're to follow. Whatever I'm doing, you're to do. I'm the one who is the Lord. And Matthew has not yet had the impact of that, nor had the four fishermen and others that were following Jesus had the full impact of that. But we're to make sure that we understand, as those who name the name of Christ, That we have a sense of the full impact of that. What does it mean for me to follow Jesus? And it means taking up a cross. And it means confessing Christ. And it means dropping everything so that in all things Christ has the preeminence. And if there's one bit of territory that we hate to surrender in our culture, it's the preeminence of Christ. That he is Lord. But he stands before this man and says, follow me. And we don't have a debate. We don't have any arm wrestling going on. We don't have any if, ands. And we don't have any excuses. Others had excuses, didn't they? I have a new car I want to try out. Well, it was back then. But uh, I have a new car. I have some new wheels uh, that, that I got. And I have to try them out. And so I'm going to do that. I will Come and follow after I've tried out the wheels. And, and I've, I've got this to do, and I've got that to do, and I've, I've got sickness in my home, and so forth and so on. You know, there are very few homes that don't have sickness in their home. There's always something happening in the home. There's always some, some tragedy happening in the home. There's always a problem in the home. There's always going to be excuses. We're expert at excuses. And whenever something doesn't get done that is supposed to get done... The very first thing we do is we happen to have a six gun of excuses. Let's say I reach in and I grab my six gun of excuses and I start firing and hoping somehow one of those excuses will be deemed, nah, that's a pretty good excuse. I guess I'll accept that today. But we don't get that. He got up and followed him. What would it take for those of you that are not believers this morning? What would it take for you to follow him? For you to follow Christ, you know something. I mean, anyone that's been here for any period of time, surely you know a little bit about Jesus. We know something about him. Surely we know a little bit about ourselves. We know that we're the sinner. We know that he's the Savior. We know that he's the Lord of glory. We know that he came to save sinners. And you see, if we connect the dots on that, we come to a wonderful picture, don't we? Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And I happen to be a sinner. And it's not a great intellectual leap for me to realize Jesus came to save me. I should pay attention. I should give ear to him. He's come to say something to me. He came to do something for a sinner like me. And I should pay extra special attention to that. And I shouldn't be ignoring that. And I shouldn't be saying, at another time, these things are very important. But I'm really busy right now. I'm in the barn building business. I've got such a harvest. I've got to put up a barn. I need bigger barns. And I need to get involved in that. And I don't know what your bigger barns are. And I don't know what your test drive is. But whatever the test drive is, and whatever the bigger barn is, is not worthy of setting Christ aside. And Matthew, who was money bags in his community, when Jesus came calling and said, Follow me, his priorities were immediately changed. Over in Luke uh, chapter 5, just turn over there for a moment. A bit of a picture of, of, the, of the fishermen. And in 511, uh, we, we have the reminder of a pattern that is duplicated. And it was this, and they left everything and followed him. That was the end of their fishing career. This is the end of Matthew's tax collecting career. we drop everything and follow Jesus. And that's exactly what is taking place. It's, it's the, the effectual call of grace, as Spurgeon calls it, through the preaching of the gospel. And everybody hears it. But there's another call, isn't there? And for those of you that have done any amount of reading, and you start reading and you begin to realize something, that as you read these people, they have such a a grasp of of such an understanding of the gospel. And if you say, well, Spurgeon's a little old English. I'm a little difficult with that. And, and uh, some of you, if you're using the King James Bible, you're fibbing when you say that because Spurgeon's writing. You know, you start reading along, and you read a little Spurgeon, you read a little uh, J.C. Ryle, or you read John MacArthur, Ashamed of the Gospel. Read that book. That's a glorious picture. Something they got out of the Bible. That's a great place to get your theology. And, and Paul, when he's writing to the Thessalonians, uh, he reminds us of how the Gospel came. And he says in verse 5, the gospel did not come to you in word only. There is an effectual call. And the effectual call is this the word comes, that's the common call. I'm speaking this morning. It could be somebody else speaking and then the other given morning. And the call of the gospel is given to you. And the call of the gospel is given to you. Sometimes you might say, Well, I've got to fasten my seatbelt. I know when he gets to the end of the message. He's going to start talking about me being unsaved and my need of Christ. And it's a quarter to 12 and I'm not at the end of the message. And that's exactly what we're talking about it. We're talking about it right now. So you didn't get a chance to fasten your seatbelt, you see. And, and Paul is saying, yeah, the, the gospel comes, but it comes not just the narrative of conviction. That you must be convicted of your sin in order to be saved. It's not just a matter of saying, well, I, I'm going through some troubles right now, and if I could just get out of the troubles that I'm in, then I would follow Jesus. Do you know what happens? It, this is the way it happens. I'm going through some troubles, and if I could see my way through that, then do you know what? I go on to the next troubles because Jesus tells us that there are troubles and troubles and troubles and troubles and troubles. I remember I talking about the individual that he goes up and he walks up to, to this fellow that looks rather forlorn and, and he just says, troubles? And the guy says, no, thanks, I already have some. That's us. And you have that's your philosophic one again. But if you get up on a Monday morning, guess what? There'll be troubles. And Jesus tells us every day has enough troubles, plural, of its own. And I happen to be working on Sunday's troubles. And if there's a Monday in my life, then there'll be Monday's troubles. And if there's a Tuesday in my life, there'll be Tuesday's troubles. If there's a 2017 in my life, there'll be 2017. And if we're sort of saying, well, I'm waiting for a trouble-free time when I can make a commitment to Christ, don't bother. It's not going to come. And people that are waiting for that moment of blue skies shining on me, nothing but blue skies do I see. Which was before I was born. I don't know where where Perry came from. But that's where he is. We just have troubles. Your troubles and my troubles. Are not the criteria. By which we make a commitment to Christ. It's not about troubles. It's about worship. And be saved. And here's this man Matthew. He probably didn't have a friend in town. Except for his crony tax collectors. That's who he attracted. And lo and behold, Jesus comes. And have you had that lo and behold moment? Where you realize that come to Him, that Christ is calling you to turn to Him. No excuses. No, I've got to get my life straightened out. Who are you? Mr. Fixit? Mrs. Fixit? Your your sin and my sin are beyond our ability to forgive and forget and repair Christ. And here's this man, Matthew. He hears, he responds, he responds immediately. There is no tomorrow. There's no, I need to check this out for a while. Let's check out Jesus. No. He gets up and he followed him. And then do you know what he did? He had a party. Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And you find out he has he has a party. He has a house. He's a tax collector. He's got bucks. And he's having a party. And lo and behold, it tells us that Jesus is reclining at the table. This is how we know this is a fancy house because he has a table to recline at. And he's reclining at the table in the house. And notice who's and sinners. Now it's not that the tax collectors were not sinners. But uh, Gentile sinners were really bad sinners in the eyes of the Jews. And that's who Matthew's writing to. So Gentile sinners were real. Jewish tax collectors were just sinners. So if you were a Gentile, you're a sinner in capital letters. And if you're a tax collecting uh, Jew like Matthew, then you're a sinner that we don't like much. And here they are. This is who Matthew has attracted. He's having this party. And guess who's coming? all his tax collector cronies, and all these other undesirable kind of people who are just plain old sinners. And here they are, what's going on here. And it must have been a very large property that it would accommodate so many people. But here he leaves his perceived future. He sacrifices all his hope of personal wealth and gain and security marketed today. And now he's having a party because Jesus is coming to his house. And as a result of it, we learn something about people. And here it is. The Pharisees see this. Many tax collectors and sinners, and they're eating big with Jesus and his disciples, and the Pharisees come along. I can never think of the two characters in... uh, I'm going to show my intellectualism here. Okay, thank you, my fellow intellectuals who are not ashamed to say that. And there are those two characters up in the balcony... And they were ripping everything apart that was going on on the, on the stage. And I, I always think of the Pharisees. Whatever happens, whatever Jesus is doing, there's these, these, these heckle and jekyll Pharisees. They should have been overjoyed. There's one less Jewish tax collector in town. And here the Pharisees are, and they're in the audience. They're working the crowd. They're out in the perimeter. They're not going to go in with those dirty sinners and and they're writing up the critique. And here's the question. And they wouldn't dare go to Jesus. Notice how people work? You know it from church life, don't you? Mm -hmm. Every, Every deacon knows this. I'm working with live ammunition this morning. Every deacon knows this. And somebody has brought up, some people are wondering... They they don't have a name. I think to myself, where these people? How come they don't have a name? Some people are wondering, "Boy, this," and some people are that. And it's always about some people, and they always have the same name, Mr. Nobody, Mrs. Nobody, and Mr. Lonely. Oh, that's Bobby Vinton. But but here they are, and they're they're looking at at all that's going on, and they come and they say, "Excuse me, uh, what what's going on here?" because this is what they see. This is a man who heals people. This is a man who is preaching. This is a man who is the son of man. Gives sinners. That's what he just did. And they saw that and that's fresh in their mind and now they say, "Excuse me, why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and sinners?" There was this wonderful hymn we used to sing back at Covenant and it was it was Jesus sinners came to save words of surest consolation and the reminder that that Jesus sinners came to save. You say, why didn't it just say Jesus came to save sinners? It's called poetic license. You have to word it that way so it'll rhyme properly. But here they are. How come your teacher, verse 11, is sitting down with those people? How come that's taking place? What's he doing there? And that's the pattern of Jesus' ministry. And it's done in the context of the grumblers working behind the scenes to discredit Jesus. And it happens over and over again. And you'll find as you trace through them. But many times, it's the disciples that are coming to Jesus and asking questions on behalf of the Pharisees. And so there's, how come your teacher's eating with those people? and Jesus heard this. And there are times where I wish I, I could see the picture of it all. I wonder if they interrupted the meal and asked Jesus this, or if this happened some hours later after they'd had the the, uh, the, the, the chicken and ribs and all the rest. And, and later on, the disciples say, Jesus, uh, as they're finishing up, the, those men who were there, they want to know how come you're sitting with these people. They, these are the church leaders, Jesus. Don't you know the Pharisees are the church leaders? I think Jesus knew they were the church leaders. Of course he did. How come you're with these people and not with those people? And you think that the answer is given so that others can hear the answer. And here it is. Why is your teacher eating with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus heard this in verse 12. He said this. It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that the Pharisees? No, it doesn't mean the Pharisees were healthy. It means that the Pharisees were self-satisfied and perceived themselves to be healthy. We know that they weren't healthy because, of course, we know that from from Romans chapter 3 that we mentioned earlier this morning, We know that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And Paul tells us in verse uh, 10 of Romans chapter 3, not even one, there is none who understands, there is none who seeks for God. They've all turned aside. And so when Jesus is giving this statement, he's giving this statement in a verse. It was that the Pharisees were left out because they were so full of pride that they didn't think they needed Jesus. They didn't think they needed correction. They were working. They had a work salvation program. And they knew exactly how to wash their hands and when to wash their hands and the proper posture and the whole bit. They knew how to pray. And they knew that that poor old public, publican in, in the synagogue, he didn't know how to pray. And he didn't, wasn't allowed in. He had to stand way back. And here he was not exercising proper decorum, pounding on his chest saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And he's the guy that went home justified that day. They had their own little Pharisaic program. And Jesus is saying, if you are basing your faith on your little program, on your self-sufficiency, on all your works, if you base your faith on a work salvation, it'll blow up in your face. You will end up with nothing on the last day. You'll be lost on the last day. We're not saved by our works. We're saved by grace, always by grace. And only by grace. And Jesus saying these people knew they were sick. When you talk to somebody that's just going through an awful time. And they're in a sense reaping what they've sown in life. You very seldom have to go in and explain. Well you know why this has all come upon you. It's because you've sinned against God. You've broken his law. The vast majority of people who are in trouble this morning don't need that as the opening volley of your words to them. They already know they're in trouble. They already know that their life is strewn with wrong decisions. They already know they've been walking on the road of disobedience. They already know that. They need to know how do I get off this road? Where do I turn? What next? They're already in the mess. I want to know what now. And Jesus is saying, it's those that are healthy, they don't care. It's those that are sick that need a physician. And they need the physician's diagnosis. And they're those that need Christ. And he gives a picture of this divine... Physician, who comes the grumblers are not interested they don't care but the sick do and we're surrounded with the sick we're going to see it at the end of the chapter in that one of my favorite passages in the whole of the gospel of Matthew where Jesus sees the people and you've heard me mention it before and you're hearing me mention it again when he sees the people in verse 36 he felt compassion for them because they were distressed Dispirited like sheep of a the shepherd. They knew that they were dispirited. They knew that they were distressed. They knew that. And the sheep are wandering all over the place. And the shepherd comes calling. And Jesus is in the face of these who have no use for the sinner. Many times people will admit after having been living a rebellious life. And they'll say something that's rather sad. And you start asking for testimonies. And uh, people will give a testimony and it will go something like this. I did this and this and this and this and this and this and this. And on the list will go. And then there was something will emerge out of that list. And then one day an individual came to me, confronted me. I met them on an elevator. I met them in a restaurant, they gave me a tract as they were leaving, and it kind of begs the question, why didn't that happen before? They were just as distressed in in 1999 as they were in 2009. And how is it, and why does it still happen that people make professions of faith living in Canada and nobody ever came with the gospel? Now, you could easily say, well, that's their fault. They should have turned on the TV. Don't. But do you see the picture? Jesus goes to those that need him. The Pharisees didn't care about Jesus. They didn't give a hoot about Jesus. They were antagonistic toward him. But here are the tax collectors. Who's their friend? No one. Who are these sinners who are involved in all the dirt of life? Who's their friend? As we go on the pattern that we're going in this country, we are going to be surrounded with broken lives. People that don't even know who they are. And now, as this this dirt of the world entrenches itself upon us, there'll be people that don't know what they are. And it begs the question, who's going to go to them? Who's going to dare to go and say, I'm here to tell you what the problem is? There is a God, and he has made you for himself. He has made you to bring glory to him. And they're sitting there, and their face is all disfigured, and their hair is all spiked up and is multicolored, and they're smelling bad. And you sort of say, oh, so that's what marijuana smells like. And they just spilt their beer on, on you. And there they are. And what are you going to say to them? Excuse me, I got to go home and take a bath. No, they need the gospel. These confused people need the gospel. And here are these people, these sinners. And, and we get the list of sins. And I'm sure they were a representative crowd. And Jesus says, I've come to sinners. That's who he came to save. So this is a, this is a happy meal. This is the first happy meal. It precedes McDonald's. Where here's this happy tax collector. With the big spread. And all the sinners have come. Jesus is here. And the sinners see something in Jesus. And these gals see something in Jesus. That they've never seen from the hooligans that they've been associating with. And here are these men. And they've been involved in all sorts of sins. And they see something in Jesus that they've never seen anywhere else. And it's the holiness of God. He is God. The word of God made flesh. God come in the flesh to save sinners. And Jesus says, who is it that needs the physician? The sick. The sick with sin people. And Jesus says, that's who I've come to. That's why I'm here. I'm here for the purpose of saving such people. And then he gives a commission as we close this morning. And here it is in verse 13. But go and learn, he says, what this means. What is it? It's this. I desire compassion and not sacrifice for I did not come to call the righteous but sinners. See, Christianity is a sinner's religion. It's a sinner's religion. It takes dead aim on the heart of sinners. And isn't it glorious? The world religions will give you a list of things that you need to do. Say this, do this, go to this place, take this pilgrimage, buy this, and on and on and on they go. And Jesus comes and says, follow me. Follow me. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Call upon him while he is near. And the gospel overtures come again and again and again and again. And when it comes to the end of the day and people are saying, why is it that men, women, young men, young women, Boys and girls, why is it that they're not saved? It's not because Jesus is not an unwilling savior. He is the willing savior, and he comes to sinners such as you. I always remember hearing uh, Bill Payne years and years ago, and it seems like forever ago for me now because I've got forever behind me, it seems. And I remember he was speaking, and there were some little kids sitting in the front row, uh, he doesn't count. They were littler. They were, they were little kids, munchkins. And they were sitting in the front row. And I remember um, Pastor Payne looking down. He said, I'm going to give you a little something to remember. And it's acrostics. You know, joy, Jesus, others, yourself. He said, here, here it is. It's Jesus. Jesus exactly suits us sinners. It's a sinner's religion. He came to sinners. Nobody likes tax collectors. The the, the Pharisees despise the sinners. The sinners get saved. The Pharisees went on their way. And that's the way it is. Whenever the gospel is preached, the sinner will get saved. The Pharisee will go on their merry way. And at the end, the merry way of the Pharisee has nothing to do to offer nothing to give and leaves a strewn bodies of those who are infected by it behind, hopeless, without the gospel when Jesus comes to call sinners such as you, sinners such as I, that we would follow him. Let's bow before him in prayer, shall we? Father, (coughs) we give you thanks that Christ you he divine doctor, the divine uh, physician who comes with grace and he comes to change the way in which we walk, the way in which we talk the way in which we act and he comes to change our eternity and we give you thanks that the Lord would come to our particular place of sin and would call us to come to him and would promise salvation to all who repent and believe. And what a privilege it is, Lord God, to be here this morning to see Jesus coming to this man, Matthew, and calling him to forsake everything and follow him and knowing, Lord God, that the same call comes to us to forsake sin and follow the Savior and help us to do that this day. So speak to our hearts. Leave no heart untouched, we pray, in this morning hour, that we would have Jesus, in whose name we pray.